All right, well, very good. Well, I found out on Thursday um, that I would have an opportunity to teach this morning, so I'm excited to um, share with you the results of uh, a few few hours of studying and, and preparation time. No, uh, I try to have, we, you know, we, we talk about it on Thursdays at our, uh, at our meeting uh, that we, you know, we try to have things that we're thinking on and, and keeping in, in our minds, and today is one of those. So I told Steve and and uh, Chris this this week that the topic this morning, I actually have a, a title for it, and it is Why We Sin and How to Stop It or How to Avoid It. And uh, But then I realized, I told them that, uh, you know, I don't really struggle with that. I don't really know anybody that does, so it may be that this morning there's only like one or two people here that can really relate to what I'm going to teach on. But uh, No, that's, that's certainly not true, but I do want to share with you some things God has been teaching uh, teaching me. Um, to the body, okay? All right, so by way of introduction, I just wanted uh, to tell you a little bit about when, when I first became a believer, uh, I bought into the, the bumper sticker that I, I would see on cars from time to time, and that bumper sticker would say something along these lines, and maybe you've seen this before. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. How many of you have seen that on a bumper sticker or you've seen that somewhere, maybe even on a T-shirt? Is there anybody in this room that has that actually on your car right now? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Hopefully, and if anybody did, by the time we got through Galatians, you would have, you know, you would have went out with your goo gone and, and got that thing off of your... Because uh, it's really, it's not a thing. Being I'm a sinner saved by grace is really not a thing. The truth is, if you are saved... You're born again. You're a new creature. You're a son of God, bearing the righteousness of Christ. And that for some reason, you still get tempted from time to time to embrace sin, but always with a faithful and just Redeemer that is ready to forgive. But not a forgiveness that leads to salvation again, but a forgiveness that removes any hindrances to our fellowship with Him. Once we are born again, our relationship with God, the Father, is set in stone. Just as my relationship to Carter and Kayla and Nathan as their father, that's set in stone. That can never be broken. I don't, they could leave home. They could, they could go somewhere else. They could even go into another house and claim that somebody else is their new dad. But it doesn't change a thing. I was there when they were born. I named them. They have my, you know... Uh, the DNA was transferred through, the blood was... Tra- I mean, they have, they have unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately for them, they, ha- they have, you know, a part of me, you know, in them. Nothing can change that. That relationship is set in stone. But there are things that can happen between me and my children where our fellowship can be broken. And I just want to re- wanted to remind you that when we talk about forgiveness of sin in the life of a believer, we're not talking about the... Because I used to believe that. I used to think in my early days of being a believer that, uh, that, that I could lose my salvation, that something could happen where I could, I could sin, and if I didn't uh, ask God to forgive me or seek God's forgiveness, and I, and I died before I had a chance to, to do that, that God wouldn't forgive me and I would not be able to enter into His eternal kingdom. But God rescued me from that that way of thinking, and now I understand it more clearly that there are things that can happen in my life that can hinder my fellowship with God. But my relationship with Him is set in stone. So when the Bible talks about 
the believers, you know, going to God and confessing, as John says, con confessing your sin to him and him being faithful and just to forgive <laughs> your sins. You know, we're not talking about him for the giving forgiveness to, to save you once again. No, we're talking about any hindrances that might be in the way being removed. God is gladly and freely and quickly ready to do that so that your fellowship with him can be unhindered and can be sweet where he designed it to be. John says in 1 John 1, starting at verse 8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. And in the next chapter, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you. And this is what the topic of our teaching today is. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we can stop right there and just say, Praise the Lord. Amen. We have an advocate. We have a, you know, a Father that has forgiven us. We have Jesus as an advocate. We are in good standing when it comes to our relationship with God. But John says he wrote these things so that we may not sin. And the problem is, as believers, we still do. And some of us more than others. And for us, different seasons. Sometimes we go through seasons where maybe we are stumbling more than other times. But today I want to answer the question, and with God's help and through his word, why do we still struggle with sin? And more importantly, how can we stop, escape? How can we you know, find victory over the sins that we find ourselves struggling with? I believe today's teaching will be particularly helpful for those who have reoccurring struggles in your life. And maybe even the secret ones that no one else knows about. So let's look into God's Word, see what He has to say about it. And, uh, and hopefully, when we walk away from here, you'll have clarity from his word about why we still sin and how to have victory over it. All right, so let's answer that first question. Why do we sin? I want to tell you that God made us with desires. He made us with desires. We're going to talk in a few minutes about how those desires got twisted. But then once Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead, he went to be back with his father, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell the believers, to empower the believers. In Philippians chapter 2, we see Paul writes and tells us that God is now restoring what his desire is for his people that he created. So in chapter 2 of Philippians, starting at verse 12, we read this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. All right, so this is God doing something in you. God works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he goes on, do all things without grumbling and complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So that word there for both to will in verse 13, for God uh, it is God who works in you both to will. That word for will there means to wish or desire. 
So it is God working in you, putting in you the desire to do the things that he wants you to do, to live the way he wants you to live. God is restoring back in us what he originally planned through the Spirit, empowering us. He is giving to us the desire to do what is right in his eyes. And not only does he give us that desire, it says that he also gives us the the work there. He gives us the power. He's the one that's doing this work in us. So I want to start for just a minute, and I need your, your input on this. You know, there are people that debate about what are the core desires that humans have. There are non-Christians and Christians that debate this. And I just want to, to take a few minutes. I could write them on the board. Um, I've got maybe seven or eight that I put down. But I'm, I want to know from you, as much as possible, think through Scripture. What are the Scriptures that might come into your mind? But even if you can't think of Scripture, just try to go back to the basics with me and answer the question, what are the, the basic human desires that we have? And this is not necessarily crucial to our study, but it, is, it will be helpful, and you'll see why. So just name some of them. What are some of the, the basic core desires that humans have? David refers to one thing that he would desire, and that's to be with the Lord, worshiping in the tabernacle. Yeah, to be focus with... To worship God, to, to know God, to worship Him, to focus on Him. Okay. What else? People want food. Food? I mean, you, you heard Steve a minute ago wanting to make sure the food part of our meeting was nice and, and snug and buttoned up and ready to go, right? So, no, food. You're right. Absolutely. That's on my list. Go ahead, Chris. Safety. Okay. Absolutely. So core desires that we have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. To be an image bearer of God. Family, to be known. Security. Security. Some, I think somebody, yeah, but that's right. Security. Safety, security. Love. Yeah. To be loved. Fellowship. Man, these are good. These are all, all on my list, too. Keep going, though. More things that come to mind. What is it? Yep. Yeah. I read my list. It's good. Yeah, to want to work, to provide. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To rest. Yeah. Well, money. Money. I heard the root of it is the root of all kind of trust. Yeah. So money, so the the provision maybe that comes through through that work. Well, here are the ones that I've got down. Anybody else have one you want to throw out? Someone said purpose. Um. Okay. So purpose. Anybody else? I think that I see some. Any other hand? To create. I like that. To be, you know, that's actually on my list too. So that's a that's a really good one. Uh, So I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read through the ones that I put down, and these this is just research that I did. So it's not. This is not. um, I I will tell you this though. So this came from research uh, on the internet, and just read, you know, different articles, different tools that I use for doing my research. Uh, But there were. Uh, I could I could spend the rest I could spend at least another thirty minutes talking through these because there were verses that came to mind with every one of them. So so while I'm not necessarily pulling these from Scripture, um, we're going to see how Scripture definitely ties into these. So the first one that I put down was survival. Someone said that it's just the desire to to have the basic needs met in life. 
And here's what we're going to do. So I'm, I'm wanting you to understand these desires because if you, if you saw a minute ago, uh, the verse that we read talks about the, the twisted generation, this world being a twisted generation. We're going to see how all of these desires are, are, are good in the sense that God, God made us a certain way. He made Adam and Eve a certain way. And I believe every one of these things that we see that I'm about to read would have been a part of Adam and Eve's lives in the garden, or at least most of them would have been. And I want to show you how the enemy comes along and wants to twist these things around. And so every one of these, you're going to be able to see how that could work. So survival was the first one I put down. The desire to meet basic needs such as food, water, shelter, and safety. So God puts that in us, but he puts in us, a, with, along with that, a desire to look to who to meet that, that desire and that need. Jesus says, don't be anxious for tomorrow. In other words, don't seek after, uh, you know, uh, and worry about what tomorrow is going to bring. Instead, seek after his kingdom first and let him be the one. You walk by faith with him and he will provide these basic things. But I want you to begin to see as we go through these how the enemy will twist that. How even our own old man, you know, that, that whatever still lingers around from, from when we were, uh, you know, pre-Christ, whether it's bad habits or whether it's a, you know, a, a part of our being that's there, there's still thoughts that come to our mind that question that and say, no, I don't know. I know God made this promise to me, but did he really say not to, not to worry about tomorrow? The enemy will twist every one of these and make us into, you know, get us into a place where we begin to have doubts that creep in and anxieties that creep in. So the desire to meet basic needs such as food, water, shelter, safety, that is survival. The second one that I put down was love and connection. So that was said in different ways, you know, maybe fellowship. Somebody said love. But it's just this desire that we have for relationship and connection with others, including romantic love and love for family and friends. So even all the way back in the garden, God said it wasn't good for man to be alone. He created woman to be there with a man. But you can see how the enemy can take that desire that we have for love and connection. Even now in the church, the desire that we have, God has put in us to be connected with and to fellowship with the body. How are ways that the enemy can twist that desire and make it in something that, that is good and pleasurable to God and can be a part of our worship and glory to God, but it can get twisted? What are ways that that can get twisted? Any thought come to your mind about that? How can the enemy twist even the desire for love and connection and turn it into something that is unholy and sinful? So hero worship can enter the body. Yep. Hero worship, like, a, you know, popular preacher, speaker, and we just, man, they just put them up to a, to a place. We maybe, I say what you're saying, yep. Self-glorification. Yep. Yep. And that's kind of where my thought went with that too, is that, you know, so God has an, a, a natural way, a way that glorifies Him for us to meet this desire that we have for love and connection. And there's going to be this twisting of it where we, we go in another, another path, another way to try to, to try to meet that need. And it becomes unholy and, and sinful. What about this? Somebody has a, a desire for 
you know, for love and connection. And they want to be married and they, they make a, a, a really bad, a bad choice in that. They're so desperate to be married that they even, you know, go and they, they marry an unbeliever just because they, they want this love and connection. And, and God would want them to be with, with somebody that's equally yoked with them. All sorts of ways that it can get twisted, but we'll, we'll stop there with that one. Well, the next one that I put down was self-expression and individuality, individuality. So somebody had mentioned about being creative. I think that's where this comes in. It's the desire to express oneself, to pursue one's uh, passions and interests, and to be recognized as a unique individual. When I think about how God created, and then we, you know, Ben mentioned about us being image bearers. One of the ways we bear His image is that we are creative people. So self-expression and individuality. So, so this idea of being able to, to be creative and, and express yourself. Read through the Psalms and you see how some of the, what I would consider to be kind of odd ways even, that David would express himself to God and just, you know, he would worship God in, in unique ways that maybe we don't see in other, other places, but just the expression of ourselves before God and before the world. Being creative. Those are good things, but it can be twisted. How are ways that, that our desire to, be, uh, to, to express and be creative, how can that be twisted into something sinful? Yeah, so if you begin to, to get the, the, the clap of hands or the pat on the back for your creativity, all of a sudden it, it does become something that can become a, a stumbling block to you. You, know, you begin to do your own patting on the back. You know, you like that praise. Yeah. Forget where the talents come from. Yeah. Or going down roads of expression. You're a very creative person. God designs you that way, and you take it down roads that are, that are harmful. You know, I don't want to get too, uh, too much into, uh, you know, making a list of the things that I think about, but I thought about movies and, and, uh, and music and just... Just other ways that we can be creative in the wrong way. You see, I, got, I believe God put in us that desire to be creative in different ways, but to do it for His glory. But it can get twisted. And the next one I put down was power and control. Desire for power and control over one's environment, whether it be through personal achievement, wealth, or other means. One of the things I thought about this was how in the garden, God, you know, God gave Adam authority over everything. Every animal, you have to name the animals. He had authority over, over the, you know, over the, the earth, and it was in him to be able to, to do that. And how can it get twisted? You see, very soon after after sin came in the world, you know, we read that those words of God saying that you're talking to Eve. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will he will rule over you. There seems to be in that. It's kind of a a, a weird verse, but there seems to be something in that of of a of a perhaps a, a woman's desire to have authority and power over, but he will rule over you, something unhealthy with that and twisted with that. Not the way God designed it to be. And then somebody mentioned happiness and fulfillment, the desire for happiness, fulfillment, a sense of purpose in life. Of course, I think of this, the idea of happiness, and I think of the word, the word joy, and you, know, we've, you can do word studies and think about the difference between happiness and joy, but really joy is just a, uh, you know, a much deeper form of happiness. Joy is something that's not related to circumstances, where happiness is typically going to be something short-lived, and it is very much based on circumstances. 
But happiness, you know, we have this desire uh, for happiness, for, for this fulfillment and purpose in life. Now, this, this ought to be pretty easy. But help me think of ways and name off some ways where that, that desire for happiness and fulfillment can get really twisted and really messed up. Living for the moment. Yeah, making decisions that, that really take almost no consideration to the long-term, you know, consequences, but just it will make me happy now, and that's all I care about. Yeah. So there are a lot of things that can, that can bring happiness to us momentarily. Um, again, we can, you can make lists. We could spend time talking about this, but it could be anything from food. It could be anything to things that your eyes see. Um, it could be, you know, other things that you, that you spend your resources on. You know, have you ever been guilty of or been around somebody who, you know, they get a new, a new toy and, and they're just so happy. You can just tell there's like this such a happiness in them. And you want to tell them, gosh, you know, don't find your joy or your happiness in things because that's only going to last you for, a, you know, a few days at most when it's not shiny anymore. But happiness and fulfillment. God put that in us. I believe God put, it, uh, put that in us for us to desire to, to be filled with joy and happiness. But the enemy tries to twist it and try to, tries to convince us to pursue it in other ways. Just a couple more that I put down. The next one I put down was growth and learning. A desire to learn and grow both intellectually and spiritually. The desire to grow and to learn. You think about the growth of the body and how, uh, you know, one of the reasons why you're sitting here right now is because you have a desire to grow and to learn. God put that in us. And then he sent the Spirit after Jesus rose from the dead and promised the Spirit. He sent the Spirit and promised the Spirit would be a, the one that would lead us in all truth. I mean, so we now have the Holy Spirit that's, that's taking a part and in, in the, in the primary role in our learning and in our growth. It's a part of who God designed us to be. But how can that get twisted? When you first get saved and you have that, that joy of all of a sudden you realize there's a God that's in control and that you are his child, you get that inexpressible joy and peace and you want more. And so you pursue it and you try to push your growth and you try to will it yourself. And, and it doesn't work like that. It's yeah. It takes patience and, and, and God's time for it. So that is that you get you can twist it and sort of get discouraged because of that because you don't get the results that you are hoping for. You want more of it. Yeah. It. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, somehow we miss what we read a minute ago that it's actually God that's doing this work, not us. You know, we cooperate, we you know, we embrace it, we're with him on it and walking with him on it. But it's not up to us, and the world will twist that and make it say, oh, it's up to you, man. you got to you go be the one. You instigate it. You be the one that grows. Now, the way that this idea of growth and learning get twisted is when we think that the end goal is just to learn. And remember that we learn so that we can obey, so we can walk the way God wants us to walk. The learning process is a part of that. 
but we do need to be careful. It can get twisted and make it to where the whole goal is, I just want to learn more, I just want to learn more, I just want my, you know, I just want more knowledge, more knowledge, more knowledge. But really, God wants us to have a desire to grow, a desire to obtain that knowledge so that once we've been taught, we can then walk and obey and be image bearers, like Ben said. All right, there's two more for me, and then I'm going to move on. The next one I, hit, I put down here is the sense of belonging to community. Um, that's something that we, we have a desire to do. We want to be a part of something. You know, go, go to a, um, a, a college football game, you know, in, the, in September, October, November, and you, you, know, you see a stadium of 100,000 people. What is it that drives them to want to, to be there and to, you know, to hug each other, people they don't even know? It's, it is a sense uh, of insanity. No, not insanity. Uh, that's not my notes. It is a sense of wanting to be a part of something, wanting to be a part of a community. And for somebody that's not a believer, that would be really attractive to, I want to be a part of something. You know, I've been around Little League uh, teams and just watching the way the, the parents interact with each other. They, they're a part of something. And I believe God put us that way. You know, from the beginning, God put in us a desire to be a part of a community. God did not intend for us to be alone and to live life alone. That's one of the reasons why when I meet somebody who, who is a believer that is struggling to find a, a body to walk with, you know, I don't necessarily get on my knees and beg, but it's, you know, it's, it's as close to that as I possibly can to beg them, look, God did not des- design you to be alone and to walk through life alone. He doesn't want you to, to forsake being together with the body. He wants you to be a part of a community. God designed that. But man, that can get twisted. Man, the enemy can use that to pull us away. I remember back when I, would, I was doing youth ministry, how sometimes we would... You know, we would have somebody in the, uh, in the, in the church and one of the, the teenagers and, and, and they, they played, you know, like AAU maybe, uh, basketball or baseball or some other sport that, that Sunday was one of their days that they played. And I remember having conversations with the parents of, look, you know, I really don't want them to miss on Sundays. It's one of the most important times because it was the time that our church would come together and meet and fellowship and be a part of community. And they would have to choose between which community do I really want to be a part of. And way too many times they would, they would make the choice, well, this community over here could lead to a scholarship. Mm-hmm. Really? This community over here, you know, we get to go on trips. And I'm like, man, we go on trips. Whenever Keisha plans them, we go on trips too. Yeah? <laughs> we need another one of those trips. Now, we, we, but when you're holding up, any other community or any other uh, belonging, uh, you know, that you could have to being a part of the body of Christ and walking with the body of Christ? Is there anything that compares? And I'm talking about really being a part of the body of Christ. Going to church on Sunday is not being a part of the body of Christ. And I, you know, most of us know that and realize that. But when you really experience life in the body, walking together with somebody who knows you, we had something happen in our uh, family, uh, like somebody that we know from our past. This happened like in the last couple of weeks. Such a terribly, terribly devastating situation. And it all stems from a person that really went to church but wasn't a part, really a part of the, of, of the community. Somebody, somebody wasn't walking with this individual 
to the point of knowing what they were really struggling with. So God put us in us a desire to belong to a, com- to a community. Don't let anything get in the way. It ought to be the top priority in your life to, to you know, outside of your family, what is your family doing to, to be a part of this community and walk with this community? The last one that I put here is, and somebody said this one, it's the idea of recognition and respect. The desire to be acknowledged, valued, respected by others. Man, this one gets, this one can get really, uh, you know, in a, get us in a rough place. But I think of scriptures like, you know, the, the idea of when I teach on marriage, you know, the, so the wife respecting her husband. Well, God put that there. So if you, wives, if you're not respecting your husband, one of the primary uh, you know, people in his life that should, that should be respecting him. And if you're not doing that, there's a, a need or a desire that God has put inside of your husband that isn't being fulfilled. I would say to you that in a lot of, in a lot of marriages that end in divorce because of some kind of a, an adulterous relationship, that a lot of times the reason that happens is because the wife no longer respects the husband and Satan comes along, I'm a, it's got to be Satan, comes along and sends somebody else that begins to respect him and honor him. And he begins to, I think that's probably what happened uh, in, in my family. You know, my, my, that's my story with my dad and my mom uh, is that my dad uh, had, had another relation, a relationship with another woman, had an adulterous affair. He was her supervisor, and I'm guessing she probably really respected him and honored him. And uh, God put that in us. The enemy, boy, the enemy can twist that. He desire to be acknowledged. You know, sometimes we we just want to be we want to be heard. We want to be respected. We don't like it when somebody disrespects us. Maybe that's why when we're going down the interstate and and somebody cut. I mean, for me, it's not about. Uh, you know, did you really put my family in danger when you when you you know swerved over and cut me off? Probably not. It's really the feeling of disrespect. I feel like you disrespected me. You ever thought about that? About why is it that road rage is even a thing? You know, why, what would cause somebody to get to the place when they're going down the interstate that they literally would take you know this this rocket with you know borderline rocket fuel going down the interstate and and uh, and cause somebody to be so mad that they would make choices that that can literally change multiple families forever. And I think it goes back to this, this the desire that they have, and it gets twisted in their mind of how to get that respect. And when, it gets, when they feel like they've been disrespected, they take it into their own hands. I was thinking about, you know, how in every one of these, God meets these desires in us. I don't know if you realize that or not, but when we're seeking after God, and He provides our needs. We are in the place of survival. God is love, and He meets that need in us in the most incredible way by showing love to us as we grasp, with the Holy Spirit's help, His love. That creativity we see in creation, and God gives us this, this amazing ability to be able to go out into creation and just enjoy the Creator, God the Creator, and enjoy the creativity he's even put into us. Power and control. Did you know God one day uh, that we, you know, we are called co-heirs with Christ? As somebody said earlier, 
There, there's going to be a day when this earth is, is transformed into the new, new there's going to be a new heavens, new earth, and we're going to be co-heirs ruling over this place. We have our hope and our, our desire in that future with Him. The joy that He offers through the Holy Spirit meets our need for happiness. The growth and learning is met as the Holy Spirit continues to grow us. And the body, as God provides each one with a gift, the body is continually working together for the overall growth. Sense of belonging, we have fellowship in Christ. We have fellowship with each other. And recognition and respect. You want to feel respected this morning? Listen to these words and tell me this doesn't make you feel like, God, what in the world? He says that you're a son of God. Do you know that you're going to judge angels one day? All of these things, all of these desires God meets in us. God has fulfilled every one in His way. And I just ask you this morning, what desire do you have that was birthed in you from God that He hasn't provided a way to meet that desire? Can you think of one? Or can you think of none? See, these desires, when we're seeking after God, He has a way of meeting them in our lives. The enemy, Satan, you know, the... The serpent in the garden. We're going to look at that in just a minute. He is the twister of words and thoughts. When we looked at Philippians chapter 2 above, Paul talked about the crooked and twisted generations. Crooked and twisted. It means the world has been influenced by Satan and has taken what God created to be perfect and twisted it and warped it and made it into something different than God's original design. So how does he twist what is good, taking good desires and make them warped? So I want you to keep in your mind all of those desires that we've talked about. Again, they're not necessarily, um, they're not the meat of what I'm teaching you this morning, but they are important just maybe for us to keep in mind. God has given us these desires, and he's given us the means to meet those desires but then how does the enemy twist him? So here's where I want you to turn. James chapter 1. So turn there with me. James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of... Uh, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. I want to stop there for just a minute and remind you that the reason why God can't tempt is because God's the one that put the desires in you, and he's made a way to meet those desires so if there's anything that God wants to do in you, it's not to get you to, to go away from his means of meeting those desires. God only and always wants to, to draw you to him for, his, for him to be able to be the one in his way to meet the desires that he's put in you. So you can't say I'm tempted by God because God is never going to try to get you away from his, 
His plan of meeting those desires in your life. It says in verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By his own desire. I do think it's significant there that James says his desire as opposed to what we read in Philippians, how God is the one that puts a desire in you. There's a, a godly desire. There's something in you that, that God has put that desires to do things the way God desires for you to do them. Your, your, your will being His will. He's, he's put His will inside of you for you to desire what He desires for you. But a person is enticed when his own desire, something's kind of dangled in front, it says in verse 15, Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so that's the trick. That's the secret. That's the way the enemy will take those desires in you that God wants to, you know, wants to bring fulfillment to you. And he'll entice you and try to draw you away to meet those desires in a completely ungodly way. Let's, let's see in Genesis 3 how this, how this played out. You know, you know the story, of course, Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, this is verse 1, was more cunning than any beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, As God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you, should, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. All right, so we're going to stop there and come back to verse 6 in a minute. But you see, this is, what, this is what the enemy does. Those desires that God had placed in Adam and Eve to do right, to do good, to meet those, those desires that he had, he had put in them in the right way, Satan is coming along, the serpent's coming along, and twisting those words and twisting those thoughts around. And then in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now my, my question to you, so this is getting into some of those uh, natural desires that we have, you know, the desire for food, for sustenance, we, 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 we made that clear. So she had that desire already, but now her eyes are seeing this tree and, she sees that it's good for food. And my question would be, well, quit looking at that. Look all around. Wasn't all of this other that God had provided, wasn't it also good for food? The answer is, of course. And that it was pleasant to the eyes. So again, Eve, look around. Maybe that tree is pleasant to the eyes, but what about all the other trees? What about all the other things in the garden? Weren't they also pleasant to the eyes? I would think so. And it says, and a tree desirable to make one wise. So we see at least some of these things that we talked about, the desire for Eve to, to survive, to eat, was being twisted for beauty. It was being twisted for wisdom. I mean, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. There was nothing being hidden from them. And yet the desire for wisdom was being twisted. If they had any questions, any questions about anything, if they lacked wisdom in any kind of way, all they had to do is the next time they were walking with God in the garden, hey, God, by the way, I was wondering about. 
but it got twisted. That desire for wisdom got twisted. And I would even say that whenever she took of the of the fruit and ate it and gave it to her husband, to me there's even a sign there of, of that connection between her and her husband. She didn't want to be in this alone. You know, if I'm going down, I'm taking you with me. She, she wanted to, to do this and experience this with her husband. She gave it to Adam and he ate. Somehow, the serpent was able to take all of these natural desires and all of the ways that God had already provided to meet those desires and twist them and get them to a place where they were like, you know what? Maybe I'm a little bit bored with the way God has met our needs. Maybe I'm missing out. Maybe there's more if I could just participate in whatever this tree offers. All of those things twist around those desires that God has given us and given us a means to meet those desires get twisted around and we begin to say, let me, let me find a way to meet that desire on my own. So that's why we sin. But the question then, how do we escape it? How do we get away from that temptation whenever we're faced with what Adam and Eve were faced with in the garden? Because words are being twisted, things are being shifted. Maybe even somebody we know is saying something to us and it's, it's twisting God's words around. We're contemplating, we're being tempted. How do we escape? So 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Hopefully you know this verse by heart or maybe you have it memorized, but no temptation. This is verse 13. Has overtaken you that is not common to man. So there's nothing new. Whatever struggle it is, whatever temptation you deal with, you know, I've, I've heard from people before. You wouldn't understand because, you know, you, you don't struggle with what I struggle with. Or no one would understand because they don't understand where I'm at and what I have to deal with. And I would just say to you, Paul seems to disagree. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And that word for ability there is the word, comes from the root word of dunamis, the word for power. And so when you're tempted, God is not the one doing the tempting. But God allows that temptation to come. But not so much that you are tempted beyond, he says, your ability. Now, where does that ability come from? What do we know from the Scripture? Where does that power come from? The Holy Spirit. I think about Peter saying, for his divine power, that dunamis, that power, has given us all things for life and godliness. So God's given you the power. So what he's saying is that there's no temptation that's going to come to you. God didn't bring it. He allowed it. But there's no temptation that's going to come to you that God hasn't already given you the power for you to overcome it. He says, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may not that you may be able to endure it. So that ability there is that word dunamis, or comes from the root word of dunamis. His divine power has given us all things. And that word for escape, I used to think it means, you know, kind of the idea of, of, uh, of running away, you know, like somebody, uh, uh, you know, there, there's some kind of temptation, and all of a sudden you just see the person take off running like four down the road, and you're like, man, where did he go? I used to think that's what it meant, but it, and it could mean that. There are certainly times whenever you're tempted where you do need to remove yourself from the situation. But this word doesn't necessarily mean remove yourself, escape and remove yourself from the situation. But it means to endure it. 
It means to be able to stand against it. It's kind of the opposite of laying down. In other words, you're tempted, and rather than just laying down and saying, well, I guess I've got to give in, I guess there's nothing I can do to overcome this temptation. What Paul, what, what Timoth, what Paul was saying to, uh, or what Paul was saying in, to the Corinthians was that no, God has given you the ability to not have to lay down, but to stand firm and to escape, to escape what's about to happen if you give in. If you give in, this sin is going to, you know, it's going to be a hindrance for you. And so God gives the way of escape. So I want to, I want to ask you to. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And there's really just one word that we're going to look at to understand better what is it that God has, has given us the ability, uh, you know, through His Holy Spirit to be able to, to escape, to endure, to stand. So just a couple, couple of verses and then we'll bring it all together. So 1 Timothy chapter 6. Starting in verse 6, Paul writes to Timothy this. He says, Now there is great gain in godliness. So God has given us through His Spirit. We already saw that. The, the power, His divine power has given us all things for life and for godliness. So there's great gain in godliness. But He, he gives, and this word with, it's like there's a companion to our godliness. It brings us great gain, and it's this word contentment. So contentment, to me, that is good. We're going to flesh this out just a little bit, but that is the answer. That is the way that we're going to be able to overcome sin in our lives is learning what, it, what, the, what the Scripture means when it talks about living content lives. He says in verse 7, For we were brought, uh, so we, we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of this world. For if we have food and clothing for these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires. In other words, when you're not content, go back to our list of desires, all the things that God has, has birthed in you to desire. If you're not content with the way that God, you know, the means in which He has provided to meet those desires, when you're not content with the way God has, has orchestrated and designed your life to have those desires met, when you're not content, you will begin to pursue. He says there, in, in particular, with, when it comes to finances, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. What he's saying is that when you're not happy with trusting God for tomorrow, and you begin to pursue the, the wealth and the, the meeting of your own needs the way you want to meet your needs, that it'll cause you to go through all sorts of senseless and harmful desires plunging you into ruin and destruction. That word contentment in 1 Timothy chapter 6 means to have everything that we need. So I wrote this phrase down, and I, I like it. This is something that I've repeated many times over the past week. As I, was, I mean, I was studying this before I found out Thursday I was teaching it. But, but the idea of contentment, it means this, to have everything that you need and satisfied with what you have. 
In other words, you have everything that you need. What do you not have? I beg you, make a list and bring it to me, and I'll, we'll think through that. But what do you not have? What is it, out of all those desires that God has given you in your life, what do you not have? You have everything. God has provided everything. But are you satisfied with what God has provided? And that's a big difference. You have everything. So to have everything that you need and be satisfied with it. And that's the idea of contentment. It's not just that I recognize that I have everything that I need. It's really being happy with what I have. And again, going back to those desires, I'm not just talking about finances. We're going to see in a minute. It's not just talking about finances. It's everything. Paul's going to say in a minute, in every circumstance, in every situation, I've learned to be content. It means that in your life, all of those desires that you have, are you happy and satisfied with the way God desires to meet those needs, those desires that you have? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, verse 7, so keep, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So what was that? We don't know. I have my... Uh, you know, my thoughts on that, a lot of people do, but Paul doesn't give us the specifics. In verse 8, he says, three times I pleaded the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then... I am content with weakness. This is why I say that when we talk about contentness, contentness, we're not just talking about finances. Paul says, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. This time that word content, the word means something a little different, but it means to be well-pleased. It's the same word used whenever God... You know, Jesus was baptized, and God the Father uh, speaks down from heaven and says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Same word. So just as the Father looked down at His Son and was completely pleased with everything that His Son was doing, everything about His Son He was pleased with. And Paul is saying that he has learned. He says that for the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship. So all of those things he's going through in life, he has learned to just be satisfied, to be well-pleased with whatever he's going through, knowing that whatever he goes through, God is going to work it out for good in his life. See, that's the, the secret to being really pleased with what you're going through, is knowing that God is going to use this in your life. And then in Ephesians 4, he states kind of the same thing, but a different, uh, a little bit differently. He says in verse 11, Now, not that I am speaking of being in need. He was praising them for sending financial resources to him and meeting a need. He says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every circumstance. So, so he says, every situation, whatever situation, every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need 
He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, who empowers me. So content here again means that he, is, he has everything he needs and he is satisfied with what he has. So Paul was teaching us to disassociate our circumstances with the, need, with the feeling of contentment. When you lack contentment, you lack the power that he's talking about to face your circumstances with confidence and, and with joy. When you walk in contentment, you have the power. God is, is able to, to do all of these things through you. He is the one strengthening you. He is the one giving you the power to be able to face every circumstance and for you to be content. He says, I have learned. Just wanted to point out the fact that this is a maturity thing, a growth thing. Paul says, I've learned. Probably not something he had nailed down on day one. But it's something as he's grown and matured. So what is the secret to facing these situations and circumstances with contentment? Just to remember, I can do all things. God's power has given me everything that I need to be able to face this temptation, this circumstance, this challenge. God's given me everything that I need. I just need to be content. I need to be happy with the way God is working in my life and the provisions that he's given to me. And so the answer to how do we not sin, how do we stop sinning? To me, the answer is contentment. Contentment by his strength. Be satisfied with God's design for meeting your desires. Be satisfied where you are. Be satisfied with what God has done. And when you are tempted, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, the next time you're faced with a temptation, ask yourself the question, am I being tempted to not be satisfied with God's provision in my life? We sin when we try to fulfill those desires in our own way. And I will say that Satan attacks us in every one of those areas. True contentment comes from recognizing that we have everything that we have is a gift from God and that we're thankful for it rather than constantly wanting more and feeling dissatisfied with what we have. It also teaches us that contentment is not dependent on our external circumstances, but rather it is a state of mind and heart that comes when we are, when we are fully satisfied with God. So I would say to you that a lack of contentment, what does it bring in your life? And I need some more participation as we close this thing out. Lack of contentment. When you have a lack of satisfaction in your life, you're not satisfied with the way God has provided for you. What can that lead to in your life? I named a few of these a little bit earlier, but just, you know, things like maybe boredom. I'm bored with my life. I want there to be, I want to meet these needs some other way that seems more exciting. Can you think of any other ways in your life where you, you might get off track if you began to let the enemy twist those, those needs and desires that you have and you're not satisfied with how God desires to meet those needs? What are ways and outcomes to you not being content? A feeling of never being fulfilled and therefore constantly strength. Yeah. The prodigal son journey. The prodigal son journey. I was thinking about the rat or the hamster 
going out and around, he's trying to get somewhere, and you, you're never going to get there because you're never going to get happy. You're never going to get enough. One of the verses I had in my notes is that eyes never see enough. You know, that the stomach never eats enough. The ears never hear enough. We never are going to be completely satisfied. And then the prodigal son, you know, literally leaves his father's, he had it made, leaves that thinking he's going to fulfill desires in another place. Other things that you can think of real quick? What is it? Yeah. I had jealousy down. This ain't, yeah. So you see, you're not content. You, you're jealous over someone else's, you know, finances, their marriage, their, their some other circumstance, some other need that you have that you perceive is met better in their in their life, and you're jealous over that. Maybe a few more before I close it out. I got one example that I'm gonna we're gonna look at, but. That's good. Like depression, just angry all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a pleasant person to be because you're always not content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that goes right along. It's really awesome, but it goes right along. With, I put down bitterness, bitterness, you know, because you you just aren't happy, and you even maybe get bitter at God because He's not meet. You know, in your mind, He's not meeting that desire. Because you've you've got it twisted around, and you're not content, you're not satisfied, and you're depressed. Because in your mind you want this, and it's not there. You're not getting that, and it's all about twisting it around. So the example, there's several. I mean, you could go all through the scripture. I've, I've looked at a bunch. One of my favorite ones I looked at this week was just thinking about David. You know, this king that had, you know, what did he not have? What did God not provide for him? As a matter of fact, David, when 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 God addressed him, he he told him, I, I gave you all of these things. I know we don't talk about it, but, I mean, David, he inherited all of Solomon's, uh, his whole, you know, everything. Saul, yeah, sorry. Uh, Saul, he, he, inherited, he inherited it all. And after he sinned, God said to him, and I would have given you more. But what happened, you know, he's out on the, you know, kings are supposed to be out of war, whatever that means. Was he bored? Was, what was he doing out there not being where he was supposed to be? And his eyes were wandering around. Why were they wandering around? Was it normal for, for, the, for the women to bathe in that spot? Probably. But instead of running away and fleeing and making an escape like we talked about and being satisfied and saying, nope, I'm satisfied with all that God has done in my life, he was dissatisfied. He was unhappy with what God had provided for him, and he wanted more. And he sought after it. And we know the, the consequences of that. It was disastrous for, you know, not just for, for him, but for, the, for his men, for, his, for, you know, for all of the, the future of what God was going to do in his life. It had, it had you know, some major impact. All because he wasn't satisfied God had given him desires, had met those desires in the way that, that God chose to meet, and he chose to say, I want more. So Psalm 37, this is the last verse I'm going to read. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell on the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That word delight means to take pleasure in. 
be satisfied with all that God is doing in your life. When you're satisfied with God, you will realize you have everything that you need. He's provided everything to live this life for Him. And listen to me, sin has no power over you. You are not a sinner saved by grace. The enemy wants to twist it and wants you to think that you're still a sinner and be thankful for the grace because I'm still a sinner. That is not true. If you're born again, you're a new creature. You're a new creation. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You're a son of God. You're a priest. You're a co-heir with Christ. You've, You've received power from him to do everything that he wants to do in your life. And God wants you to be satisfied with all that he's done. So the next time you're tempted, do this. I did this this week, and it was helpful. Am I bored? Am I not satisfied? Am I looking for satisfaction in some other way? Think about your life, the things you struggle with, God has made a way to meet all of your desires. Be satisfied with Him. So I'm wanting to ask you as we pray, are you satisfied? So Father, as we uh, close out our teaching time now, um, I never know, God, what, what, what will you do with the things that are, that are shared from this microphone? I know sometimes different words and different phrases and different, different verses will hit people different ways. But God, if you would at least let one common thread be something that we all walk away from here today, and that is, God, you have done it all. God, you have provided everything. You have met every need that we could possibly have. Teach us to be satisfied, to be content. And God, the very next time that we are faced with a temptation, will you let our way of escape be for us to ask that question? What is it in me? What desire is it in me that's try- that the enemy is trying to twist to get me to seek after meeting that need some other way? What is it, God? And will you help me be satisfied in that area? God, I'm convinced that if we start there, the things that we are tempted to do become so meaningless and powerless because we're immediately reminded that I don't, I don't need that thing. I don't need that thought. I don't need to say that word. I don't need to go to that place. I don't need to, to touch or taste or smell. I don't need any of that because, God, you provided for me everything that I need. And so, God, would you help us walk away today being fully satisfied with you? Just as you were satisfied with your son, let us have that kind of satisfaction to say, God, you've done it all, and we are so grateful, and we're so thankful. May we not any longer go after and strive after other ways to meet these desires that we have because God you've given us the better way 
and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.